the latest episode of our True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks speaks to the founder of Depop, Simon Beckerman, from the New York Times Climate Hub at COP26. Simon, delighted to have you join us today on True Connections and a great thank you from us for you to join us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's always an honour to hear from entrepreneurs, Simon, to listen to their stories and understand the person behind the various businesses. And I think this conversation is all the more special, given your business in particular. Also in the context of COP26, we're privileged to be recording this from the New York Times Climate Hub at COP, where we're getting to meet and learn from a number of inspirational leaders about the various challenges that our planet is facing. So Simon, before we talk about you and your business and your various ventures in the fashion business, it'd be great to hear from you about COP and I guess what your expectations are from this particular summit. There's been a great deal of hope and some encouragement. Well, the world of fashion is going through quite a big change lately. Thankfully, due to the fact that the newer generations are, I guess, asking themselves what they can do in terms of reducing their own carbon footprint, even when they buy fashion, when they consume fashion. And so even through the company I've founded, Depop, we wanted to give a tool to these people, these new generations, to be able to access and consume fashion in a new kind of way. So ask themselves question about should I buy something which is new? Should I buy it old or vintage, as they we call it now? And if I buy it new, who should I buy it from? And what are the values and the principles that these companies have when they produce these kind of garments? And so what's happening is that even bigger companies, whether that's fast fashion companies or Italian historical incumbents, conglomerates in the fashion industry, or even smaller brands, they are trying to move towards creating fashion in a more sustainable way, which is, I think, very good. This is driven also by many producers, especially in countries like Italy, for example, who are trying even to create materials in more sustainable ways. But the problem which I don't hear speaking too much about, and maybe there should be something coming out of either COP or the governments in general, is what is the speed to which we need to start moving towards as fashion companies and producers? Because one thing is trying to build fashion in a more sustainable way. But another question is, how fast do we need to go before it's too late? No? So companies like Zara, for example, are committing to this a lot. Even sneaker brands like Nike or Adidas are creating some really interesting products. Nike has been, for example, building some shoes made out of the boxes they used to ship the shoes. Or Adidas is creating some new kind of rubbers and recreating their iconic models with these new kind of materials. But the question is, is this enough? Are we going fast enough? And maybe this COP can help asking us, um, answering some of these questions and giving some advice to either these companies or maybe through governments creating some new rules, whether they are stricter or different or just extra rules that enables us to move faster into that direction. So the speed is, I think, a key element here, which I hope to see more, especially when we talk about bigger companies. And on that, Simon, I mean, the impact on the environment from 
textile production, you know, wastage and so on, water pollution, greenhouse gases, often far greater than, you know, international air travel and shipping. Do you think as an industry it's up to now being as creative enough? I mean, you've mentioned a few big brands there in terms of their product development. Is there enough innovation when it comes to the manufacturing processes and so on in terms of a sustainable clothing brand? Well, I think it's a mix because as a consumer, especially younger generations, they grow up where that's their way of expressing themselves. They are growing up, forming their own personality, finding their own tribes in a sort of way. And those are, let's call them, quote unquote, uh, problems for the younger generations in a sort of way. That's why fashion is a very powerful tool for them to express themselves. So what we need to do is, I think, convince the younger generations in a sort of way, or probably it's them who are trying to convince us sometimes, more often than not, probably, that the choices that we need to make need to be slightly different. If you talk, for example, about buying new fashion as opposed to vintage fashion or used fashion, out there there are so many small brands who produce small batches that because they produce very small quantities are able to access more sustainable methods of productions and more sustainable materials, something that bigger companies are not able because big productions of sustainable materials are not sustainable themselves. So I think what we need to do is try as much as we can to help the people make wiser choices. And when we do that, probably the bigger companies will try to follow in whatever way they can. And as I said, a couple of ideas are not only when we buy used, but also when we buy new, maybe change the kind of choices we make, choosing smaller new brands who care a little bit more about these kind of values or are able to fulfill these a little bit better than the bigger companies. And this is difficult because the vast majority of people out there, when they buy fashion, they need to buy bigger brands because that's how they need to convey their sense of belonging in a sort of way. And so that makes it a little bit more difficult. And also another thing which I think is very important is This is even more difficult because the best choices are nowadays becoming those where we try and consume fashion by buying less but more quality. So to give you an example, I used to wear these pair of shoes which are very fashionable, which now even cost quite a bit of money, but they are, the quality is not very good. And after a year or two that you use them, you need to resold them or throw them away and buy another one. And so at a certain point, I took the decision of buying another brand of shoes, which I'm not going to mention, but triple the price, but I've been using them nearly every day for like seven years and they are nearly as new. So buying less, but more quality, lasting for more, I think is a very good new way of thinking, or probably it's not even new. It's the way we used to choose how to buy fashion before fast fashion came to be in the 90s. So maybe going back a little bit to buying more quality stuff, which lasts a little bit longer. And I'm saying it's more difficult because as a young person, I like to change a lot the way I dress. Not myself, sorry, (laughs) I'm not so young, but getting into the mindset of a young person, they like to change more often than we do. And so they feel or they want to buy more often. And so that's going to be a little bit more problematic due to the fact that quality things cost more. 
So that's where probably the company I founded comes in, Depop, which allows the younger generations to buy more quality things for cheaper by buying vintage, which happens also to be a better choice for them nowadays because they get to buy things which are more unique, more rare, more special. So it feels to me, Simon, that that trend of fast fashion doesn't necessarily go away. It feels like it's irreversible direction of travel. But if you're giving the consumer more choice in terms of how they apply that trend through you know, the way you've done it with Depop, et cetera, it can become, in a sense, a little bit more sustainable from that perspective. Do you see it that way? Yes. Fast fashion, I wouldn't say it's not going away or going away. I think it's always going to be an alternative, especially because it's quite cheap in a sort of way. And there are some brands who produce very big quantities of their clothes that are also able to do them slightly more sustainably than probably smaller companies. For example, Uniqlo, they are famous because the jeans they make, they have these machines which cut jeans in a manner which is so efficient that they have much less extra material that they need to throw away at the end of the day. So Uniqlo probably is considered nearly fast fashion in a sort of way. So we can buy sustainably from these brands too. But what I think is the best way is to educate people in making more smarter choices. And I think we are getting there. If we look at the trend, people want to buy more and more unique. And so they are going towards the smaller brands, smaller companies, so that when they buy something, they can feel that they are nearly the only ones wearing these kind of clothes. And again, as I said, vintage is very useful in that sense because it enables circularity of fashion. So you're not going to produce anything by buying vintage. Yeah. And so I'm just, you know, we've heard a lot at COP in particular around the collaboration between enterprise and government and regulators and so on. And we've seen the fashion industry charter being presented as well. You've spoken a lot about brands and businesses. What have you seen, if anything, from a government perspective that can help improve things from a climate impact perspective in respect of textiles and fashion? Have you seen anything so far that's meaningful? To be honest, no, I haven't seen very much. What I've seen is in a country like, for example, Italy, which is where I also come from, despite my English name, there's a very strong culture of small producers and the whole fashion industry is sort of guided by what new materials are coming out this year, what these textile producers are creating. And so there's a big trend now in Italy amongst these small producers to try and create things which are more sustainable despite what the government does. So I think that is happening anyway, luckily. And I see this trend moving all along, all across the world, where there are obviously many countries where this is a little bit less and other countries where this is a little bit more. Like, for example, if you look at Japan, Japan has been historically one of the first countries to experiment in all these kind of areas from small producers who have specific kind of materials to appreciating the value of buying unique vintage clothes. And Japan has been exporting this all across the world. But in terms of governments, no, I haven't seen too much of this. I think there was something in France going on around burning extra stock, but I can't remember how the law is over there on that. 
it definitely feels like the EU have got a significant part to play in this. So given the sheer number of brands, producers and so on that is, that is coming out of the European Union. So it feels like certainly from a collaboration and a, a collegiate perspective, we need both governments and businesses and brand makers to work together. Simon, so we've talked about current day, we've talked about the current trends and what you see going on. But just I want to touch on taking you back to you know, your early days at Depop and it'd be great to hear a little bit from you in terms of you founding the business, which, you know, for those listeners that are not so familiar, you know, a hugely successful social e-commerce business with a you know huge focus on younger users with, you know, tens of millions of users across the globe. What was the inspiration behind that time? It, it feels like you were very much ahead of your time, or maybe timing was perfect for you. Where did you see it from your perspective? That's a good point. Ahead of our time in a sort of way, true, because if you think about it, so 95% of Depop's users are under 26 years old. So mostly Generation Z. We started Depop 10 years ago, and 10 years ago, the oldest Generation Z were 9 or 10, I think. So they weren't even allowed to use apps at the time. So I think slightly ahead of our time. But yeah, Depop started in Italy 10 years ago. We moved to London in 2012. Once we had developed the first product and then did a soft launch in Italy to test it. And then we moved to London end of 2012 in four people. The company then still headquartered in London. After the exit, I've also personally exited the company. But the company is still run by the same CEO who has been running it since 2016. And it's a 450 people company. I think we are going to be soon touching the 40 million users. The assumption I had when I started it was that in the next 10 years, there was going to be a new generation of people who was going to access fashion in a new kind of way more sustainable, first of all, but also more unique. I used to run a fashion and music magazine at the time. And together with my brother also, we were running a sunglasses business, which is still going on. And my brother is running it in Milan. And so what happened was, I thought that the next 10 years, as I said, was going to be seeing a new phase where new generation would come up wanting to consume fashion in a new kind of way. And I don't remember exactly why and how I started all of this, but sustainability has been always a little bit part of me. And by sustainability, I mean the fascination around knowing more, discovering and buying objects, whether it's fashion or design or anything else, from smaller producers who were looking a little bit more into the future, innovating in everything they did, including the means of production. And so we talked a lot about these people in our magazine, and the app was supposed to be an extension of the magazine where we would give access to these people to sell their own things to our community. So more or less, that's how Depop came to be. And the fact that it's an app has sparked from the assumption that this new generation was going to consume technology also in a new way. At the time, it was 2011. iPhone had just launched the App Store a year and a half earlier, and apps were poised to be the future way of interaction. And so I designed Depop in a, in a very simple way where it was a social, still is, a social mobile marketplace. Visually, it used to look a lot like Instagram when we launched it or Pinterest or Twitter. So you had a home feed. 
where you could follow people and see what they posted. In our case, what they listed for sale. We had profiles where you could see who they followed, what they were selling, also what they liked and what they purchased. And also you could chat through instant messaging. You could share, you could like, you could comment, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously listing something for sale was very simple. You could do it directly from the phone by taking a picture, which at the time was very innovative. So taking these two things together, this new kind of technology and this new community, putting it into one app and allowing these sellers to be all together and access this new world of buyers, which I assumed was going to come. And luckily, this is what happened. And Simon, you talk a lot in terms of the sense of community and collaboration, particularly obviously amongst users who have the ability to share and to follow and so on. Did you ever have a problem or an issue in terms of balancing that sense of community with commercial sense and commercial acumen and the ability to be profitable from that. Was that ever a concern from your perspective? Well, luckily our marketplaces since forever have used mainly the same kind of business model, at least as a default, which is taking a percentage fee from every sale. So that's what we decided to do since day one. Depot takes 10% fee on the sale of every item. And because this is a very basic, classic, renowned, accepted way for a marketplace to work, it was quite easily accepted by everyone in the community. Although there has been difficulties, obviously, like we've seen in other marketplaces online, for example, Airbnb, eBay, where people try to buy outside of the app. And that has been a bit of a problem because in terms of buying safely, buying the right kind of things, receiving the items. But no, I don't think we ever had any particular problem around this. The more we grow, the more items are sold and the more we earn. So it's all quite standard. And just turn to that sustainability point, Simon, I mean, it feels like that's been a key to your success over the years. Has that, I guess, continued wave of support, of desire from consumers, has it been an element of surprise for you? That's been maintained over time or is that something you've fully expected? No, there has been some things which I really didn't expect. For example, we didn't expect such a large wave of Generation Z using Depop in the way they've been using it. To give you an example, imagine in the physical world, buying something vintage would mean that you would go in a vintage shop and rummage through boxes and getting home with dirty clothes, all stinky, and having to wash them, and maybe being surprised by discovering some defects which you didn't even notice. So buying vintage in the real world, apart from a few shops or instances, is not a super nice experience. But what happened in Depop was that these new generations have been using it in a very interesting way. They basically, if you think about it, selling something online, what they've been doing was basically taking pictures of themselves wearing these clothes in a very styled way as if they were selling something new or as if they were posing for a fashion magazine mainly. And so the result is that in a lot of instances, you see the experience of buying something vintage is equivalent of buying something new because you see a very nice picture, a very good description. You can see all the details. And sometimes the quality of these listings that you can see on Depop is even better in terms of look and feel than 
buying from a basic e-commerce where the picture is just a press image with a white background. So there's been a lot of creativity in that sense. And that has been very surprising. We really liked it. And to give you a funny story, when we started Depop, the whole selfie thing wasn't a thing in general in the world. Selfies have become even a term probably around a year or two after we launched Depop. And I also remember Days and Confused, a fashion magazine from London talking about this new wave of selfies. And I remember the first people on Depop taking pictures of themselves wearing these clothes that they were selling and they were taking pictures of them in front of a mirror. So taking effectively a full body selfie. And I thought they were a bit cheesy as pictures. And so we were even thinking of not allowing these (laughs) in the interest of creating something, a community which had pictures in a specific format, which we were trying to drive the community to do. But at the end, we started liking them a lot because they were a lot of fun and people were having fun in doing it. And then obviously this has turned into a worldwide phenomenon and now selfies is a normal thing. It's the power of the community, I guess, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, you just remark there on something which, you know, you look back 10 years and as you say, it's something that just wasn't around then. Within that 10 years, Simon, an awful lot of things have happened. Your business has grown exponentially in that time. I guess there must have been a number of challenges in terms of maintaining your cultural values within your business during a period of incessant change. And a number of entrepreneurs and business owners listening to this will recognize that. How much learning did you take from some of the challenges and mistakes that you and your team would have made during that time? And how difficult was it to maintain some of those core values that you would have had as a team at the time? This is a good question. I think that some of the biggest challenges were exactly around the values. One of the challenges was, and still is, defining these values and having them in such a way that the team can easily always have them in front of them whilst they take decisions. Some companies call them operating principles. And when you start a company initially, you don't plan to organize yourself in such a way to have all these written down and easily actionable because you need to launch your product as fast as you can and you're always doing new features and solving problems and bugs and scalability and hiring, etc. So until the company is very small, the CEO, the founder or other people in the company are able to convey the values every time you take a decision. Think about these values, even to make a comparison, when you raise a kid, you teach them some principles and these principles stay within them for the rest of their lives each time they take a decision. They need to think about doing something. They run this decision against the principles they have learned growing up. Same things for a company. But when a company starts becoming big, it is very complicated to convey these values and principles every time you need to take a decision. So you need to be organized in that. And probably that has been and still is the most complicated thing of all. So you end up as a founder sitting down in every meeting and listening to all the conversations and the discussions that are taking place and the decisions that need to be taken. And every time you reach that point of having to take a decision, you need to weigh in and convey these principles just to make sure that they have them in their minds as they take these decisions. And Simon, an extension of that, I guess, is 
when you go through a transaction as a business owner and you've experienced that yourself with you know the disposal to Etsy earlier this year and you know, many congratulations on a fantastic achievement there but how did that come about and did you have any reticence particularly when you think about you know those values and the culture of Depop itself in terms of bringing in an external party to the organisation. Did you sense any concern from yourself or your own team on that particular deal? Well, it's been a very particular moment, obviously. Talking about family, you grow your family, your child for 10 years, and then you have to give your child in marriage to someone else. (laughs) So that's always a very difficult moment. When you decide to start a company like Depop, for example, which basically is new platform, innovative technology, which needs to grow in a specific way, in a specific speed. Thus, it needs to raise money and capital from very specific places. Venture capital is the first. Angel investors, venture capital, private equity later. But this kind of path leads you to have to grow your company very fast. And by very fast, I mean within 10 years, you need to reach a point where A, the company becomes self-sustainable and B, who invests in you need to close their funds and give their money back to the LPs. So you have to go through a kind of transition. Usually this transition is either an exit or an IPO. So yeah, we have reached nearly 10 years and obviously started to think about what the next step was going to be. And the company has been preparing for both scenarios, whether that was going to be an exit or an IPO. And So the CEO, who has done a great job in the past years, has created a senior leadership team who was able to go through these two phases, any one of them. And then at a certain point, what happened was that Maria, the CEO, has been starting to engage with Etsy into conversations, first a coffee, then probably a couple of more meetings, until at a certain point, there has been a verbal intention to move forward and discussing proper M&A. So what happened at that point is we instructed an investment bank to do a valuation for us internally, and then we went through the whole offer, counter-offer, term sheet, you know, classic. And at a certain point, there's been the famous board meeting where we had to all raise our hands and say yes or no. And we decided for a yes. The reason is because although we do believe that Depop has a very long pathway in front, Depop has been sold for $1.6 billion, but we think that it can go 10 times that. Keep in mind that Depop has been launched in only a few countries so far, US, UK, Australia mainly. So there's a lot of road ahead for Depop. But going IPO in a very particular moment like this one where things are going up and down due to the pandemic was a bit uncertain. At the same time, the funds who invested in us were reaching the end of the journey, at least for a couple of them. And Etsy would have been a perfect new family for Depop to be in, more secure, more experienced. And so Etsy was perfect as a company to take Depop to the next level. I haven't been paid in Etsy shares. So I'm saying this even in a little bit of sadness because I'm not going to participate to the growth of Depop economically, but spiritually being the founder, I'm still proud of what we did and very happy for Depop to be part of the Etsy family. I couldn't be happier. And before we come on to the road ahead, I guess, Simon, throughout that sort of process, what did you learn about yourself as a founder and a leader? And I guess something that might be 
resonating with others who are considering a similar path? What did you see in yourself that you hadn't seen before? The main thing I realized of myself is that I really enjoy starting a company, going through the difficult phase of building the first product, the first team, going through the, let's call it the validation phase, where we are out there searching for our product market fit, but then a little bit less so in the growth stage, the scale-up stage. That's more of a mechanical operational phase. So I realized that I enjoy more the first part of it. Although I've sat for part of the growth stage next to Deepop's CEO, working with her, trying to go through it, I've learned that probably there are these two kinds of mentalities, no? The startup mentality, the startupper, and then the growth operational kind of person. And so I've learned a lot. I didn't think I was like that before starting Deepop, but I now realize that this is more of my path. Although with the new company that I'm building, I think I'm going to try and test myself at least for part of the growth stage and see what happens. But yeah. And on that, Tom, do you then see yourself as the creative type? And we've spoken to a number of entrepreneurs on the podcast before, and many of them might not have the skill set in the businesses and the companies they've built over years, but they've either had a vision or they've had the creative nous to sense an opportunity. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum? I do see myself a bit of the creative type. I think the ability for me to see things a bit more farther in the future. I like to observe what happens around in the world, look at the behaviors of people, try to identify the problems and always think about what solutions one can bring to solve those problems. So I think I'm more of the creative thinking out of the box, no rules and no boundaries, which plays well with the very first stage of a company. But I think the career pathway can be varied. If you look at iconic examples out there, there can be very different career paths. For example, if you look at Google, the two founders have hired the CEO nearly immediately. Eric Schmidt has been running Google and they have been sitting next to him. But in other cases, Apple or Tesla, they are also creative founders, but they have been CEOs of their companies until the very last moment. Elon continues to be. And I think that's because they managed to create a very good relationship with their COO, who runs a big part of the company. Facebook is another example. Sheryl Sandberg is one of the most important, the best operational people in the world, which allows Mark Zuckerberg to concentrate on product and building the community, probably. Exactly. And you touched on new ventures. You touched on new organizations that you're looking at. What is next on your list, Simon? What are you looking at currently? I am trying to repeat, in a sort of way, the same path we've gone through with Depop. So I'm starting a new marketplace, also mobile marketplace. But this time I'm trying to solve another problem, which is in the food industry. So the company is called Delhi with a double L, which is a short for delicious or Delhi as in delicatessen. And this one starts from the assumption that in the next 10 years, as we all know, it's already happening. People are going to try and eat, consume food in a new kind of way. Again, more sustainable, more quality because this is going to make us more healthy, but also more local. And what we are seeing happening in many places in the world, for example, even in cities like London or New York or Los Angeles, we are seeing a new wave of small batch, if you want to call them like this, food producers who are creating their own little brands. 
for example, they are creating kombucha or chili sauce or bagels or even things like kefir, all sorts of things. And you might see some of them maybe having their own profile on Instagram and selling directly on Instagram or having their little Shopify or even some of them are selling straight from WhatsApp. And so because there's a lot of these, there's also a big community of buyers around these people. And some of them are ex-chefs who worked in a restaurant. Some are people who studied and then this is their first job. Some people come from fashion. For example, there's many people who are moving from fashion to food nowadays. And so the idea is to create one community, again, mobile, through a very simple app, which resembles a social network in a sort of similar way to Depop and bring all these people together and allow us as buyers to discover and be inspired by all these new food producers and buy better food, good food, which is more local, as I said, and more sustainable, hopefully. Sounds incredibly interesting, Simon. And what I love about it is, you know, along with a number of entrepreneurs and leaders that we speak to, this notion of solving a problem is key to their skills and key to their success. And you've identified something right there with the food industry in a similar way you did with fashion all those years ago. Simon, before we let you go, and it's been a great discussion and we're very thankful again for you joining us. For business owners and I guess entrepreneurs that you come across and you speak to and you mentor, I'm sure, what's the abiding principles that you stand by as a leader, as a business owner? I'm going to say something maybe cliche, but I always think customer first, especially in the first phase when you start a company from the beginning, you need to think about what problems do customers have? And so full concentration on trying to solve a problem for the customer without thinking what is the customer going to do for us as a business, but always what we as a business can do for the customer. My sort of motto in a sort of way is make a customer happy and the business will come. So it seems basic and obvious as a recommendation, but you would be surprised how difficult it is to keep this focus when you build a company because fear kicks in, problems kick in, and maybe you start looking at the business plan and you see the money finishing. And so you start thinking about, okay, what can they do for us? How can we make this business better? And you start taking shortcuts, hacks and whatever, which ultimately lead us to create a product which is not solving that problem anymore or not solving it enough or too opportunistic business-wise which is something that customers, especially initially, who don't know you and when you need to build trust, they don't like. So I always say 100% focus on customer first. And how true that is across every single business and organization, whether it's a client, whether it's a consumer, whether it's a user, without them, you don't have a business. So it's simply the lifeblood. So incredibly prudent advice. Simon, thank you very much again for joining us. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation today. Great to have coincided our podcast with our time at COP and also grateful for your insights into your thoughts on the fashion industry and textiles in the context of climate change and our global challenges. And I wish you the best of luck in your new endeavours and your passion for continued discovery with Delhi. So thank you, Simon. It'd be great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and see you soon. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Hold up. 